Um, we'll continue our time of worship with scripture reading. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll begin at Acts chapter 13, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as I spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Katrina, for reading that scripture for us. Um, as you can tell, uh, we're in the book of Acts, right? Uh, we're in chapter 13. So we've started this um, a little bit before Advent last year, but it's going to take us a little bit past Easter. Um, but thus far in the book of Acts, what we've seen is the birth and the journey of the early church. Um, and most recently, what we've seen is Paul and Barnabas got connected. And they're doing ministry together. And the text I just read uh, last Sunday, or the text that uh, Katrina just read, is Paul's first recorded sermon. Uh, we covered the majority of it last Sunday, so we're kind of like covering the last of it today. And we're going to wrap it up. And, and what we're going to learn today from the conclusion of Paul's sermon is that there are two ways to respond to the gospel. That's, that's what we're going to learn, right? I'm picking up some feedback. Just be patient with us. Um, I know that we got some new wires going on today, but what we're going to learn today from the conclusion of Paul's sermon is that there are two ways to respond to the gospel. So here's the outline for our sermon today. First, we're going to take a look at one, the gospel revolution. Then we're going to take a look at two, this Jew and Gentile distinction, right? Like you can't avoid this phrase, this, this concept in, throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. This, what, what is this 
Jew and Gentile distinction. That's going to be our second point. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the main point. And probably you're thinking, Rich, how is that the name of the third point, the main point? It isn't, but I just had to put something together, okay? So first, the gospel revolution, all right? Uh, St. Augustine, um, he was an early church father, he said this, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Now, what does that mean? That's just a very, very clever way, very smart way of saying that the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, from Abraham, Moses, and David, the entire Old Testament, every single, every, uh, every single figure, every single teaching, every single iota of it is all pointing to Jesus. That's all Augustine is saying. Actually, Augustine got this from Jesus himself, this interpretive key, how to interpret the Old Testament because at the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus has resurrected he's revealed himself to his disciples and they're walking along and Luke records that beginning with Moses and all the prophets that Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself right so that's what Jesus is doing that's what Augustine notices and today in our passage what we see here is that Paul is doing this too Paul is doing this too what do, what do I mean by that? In verse 41, what Paul is doing, he's taking a passage in Habakkuk and he's interpreting it to the audience and saying Habakkuk is talking about Jesus. Right? That's what Paul is doing. Now, I have to back up a little bit and talk about Habakkuk just a little bit because in Habakkuk's context, Israel is under the rule of Assyria with the imminent threat of another nation, Babylon. So Israel is under current oppression in Habakkuk's book and they're sort of seeing more oppression from Babylon on the horizon. And so Habakkuk receives a prophecy from God and, and he says this, and, and Paul quotes this in our passage in verse 41. Habakkuk says this, or God says this to Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's what God tells Habakkuk, right? Israel's under oppression. They see oppression coming, more oppression that's what God tells Habakkuk. And so when Habakkuk hears that, when Israel hears that, the expectation of this prophecy's fulfillment is that someone like a descendant from David, an earthly king, would rise among them and overthrow Israel's earthly enemies. That's the expectation, right? That's the new work that they're hoping that God would raise up for Israel. But then in verse 41 of our passage... Paul quotes Habakkuk in his sermon and he says, that long-awaited descendant of David, that long-awaited king is Jesus. That's what Paul says. He is saying that the work that you are looking for, the enemy that you are looking deliverance from, concretely, maybe it is the oppressive neighboring enemy. But what Paul is saying underneath that is a greater enemy, right? Satan, the devil, and sin. And he says, the long-awaited king of that enemy, the conqueror of that enemy, is Jesus. That's what he says. And he says, if you believe in him, he forgives your sins. He forgives everyone's sins. And you have hope for resurrection for all things one day. And Paul says, this is for everyone who believes. 
And this was a breakthrough revelation back then. Because back then, every country had their own God, right? And every God was invoked on behalf of their own country to give them victory over their neighboring countries. But then Jesus comes along, and what does he say? This king says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the old command was love your neighbor. But I'm giving you a new command, a greater command. Love your enemies. It was revolutionary. There was never a religion that had the power to unite enemies under the kingship of Jesus. There was never a country, there was never a religion that made grace and peace and unity so central to their teaching like Jesus. It was revolutionary. And this was a tremendous challenge to Paul's audience. You see? Because in Paul's audience, we see this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It's a distinction we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus and his disciples continually address this Jew-Gentile distinction. And you cannot understand the gospel without understanding this distinction. Why was this distinction such a point of emphasis for Jesus? Well, the word Gentile is a Latin word that means the nations. And this was how Israel distinguished themselves from others. Because Israel was originally chosen as God's people. And so, right, in the book of Genesis, God chose and calls out Abraham. From Abraham came Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob. From Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're the chosen people of God. But the history of Israel and the other nations, the Gentiles, was one of constant conflict. Constant conflict. So when Jesus comes along and he says that I'm not just the king for you guys, for Israel, he says, I'm also the king of the Gentiles, your enemies. So this, this drops everyone's draw. Think about that, right? Jesus is coming to every single one of us today. And he's saying, I'm not just your king. I'm not just saving you. I'm not just forgiving you. I'm not just loving you. I'm also your enemy's king. I'm forgiving them. I'm saving them. I'm loving them. It's revolutionary, isn't it? Challenges you, right? Challenges me every single day. And we see in our text that this is so shocking to Paul's audience, and we shouldn't be surprised that it triggers two extreme responses. There are only two extreme responses. You know, people don't just walk away thinking, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> right? Oh, I've heard that before. Oh, that was delightful. What's for lunch? You know? No, no. It, it elicits two extreme responses. Verse 48 tells us that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing 
and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Verse 43 says that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, they urged them, they encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. Right? So we see here one extreme response and they're saying, Paul, what you're saying is what we need. What you're saying is what the world needs. What you're saying is what I need. Grace, forgiveness, peace, unity, reconciliation. This is revolutionary. All these different people from different places with different experiences and different backgrounds and different upbringing hear the same message and they get united under the kingship of Jesus. That's the first response. Now, the second response in verse 45, Luke tells us that some Jews were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and reviling him. And this isn't the first time that we see some Jews uh, uh, from the synagogue described as being jealous and going against the disciples. Eight chapters before in Acts 5, when Peter was preaching the gospel, uh, it says that believers were being added and it says that the high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostle and put them in public prison. And so what it seems to be happening is that some Jews, not all of them, are jealous that the early disciples of Jesus are pulling people away from their own uh, traditional religion. And um, I, have, I had to take some time to think about this, Right? Um, why would anyone be jealous of someone choosing a different religion? Like, don't you find that strange? I had to think, like, why are they jealous? You know? Because if someone told me, Pastor Rich, you know, like, hey, can we meet? And then if, if, if they told me, I've decided to no longer be a Christian, right? I've decided to choose uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Islam or just atheism, I would, be, I would be devastated, right? I would be, I would be distraught. I would be I would be destroyed. I would, I would pray for them. I would meet up with them. I would listen to them. I would try to reason with them and persuade them to not go down this path. But I don't think I would be jealous. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why would I be jealous? So I had to like sort of think through this, put myself in, you know, these people's or the audience in our text, their shoes. What would, me, what would make me jealous? And this is the best sentence I could come up with. Um, you can feel free to come up to me and disagree with me and help me out here. But I think I would be jealous if this person's conversion to a different religion, I would have a spirit of jealousy instead of a spirit of sadness if somehow that action made me feel devalued, less important as if somehow that person was better or more significant than the work that I was doing, right? It would reveal that my motives then aren't really for God and for others, that it's for myself, my pride, right? What I can do. That, 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 that's the best answer I could get. That would make me jealous. And I think there's, there's a deeper principle here, and that is the spirit of jealousy, Right? I think the spirit of jealousy is something that we all struggle with. We all struggle with jealous, jealousy from others. You know, like these leaders were jealous of whatever the, the, 
the popularity that other religious leaders were getting. Um, but for us, maybe it's the popularity that people at our workplace are getting. Maybe it's the popularity that some of our friends or families are getting. Maybe it's the popularity maybe in the church that some people are getting and I'm not getting. And here's how you know if you're jealous, if you struggle with jealousy. Paul tells it to us. He says, you're, you struggle with jealousy if you find yourself scoffing at the people you're jealous over. What does that mean? Because in verse 41, Paul says, look, you scoffers, right? <laughs> you, you haters, <laughs> right? Scoffing is a telltale sign of jealousy, right? What is scoffing? It's a sarcastic critique that's supposed to belittle or undermine that person, right? That's what it is. Ah, that person's not that great. Something like that. Him? You see, athletes do this all the time. That guy, MVP? Nah, right? That's scoffing. But they're jealous because they want to be MVP. But that's what we do when, when we're jealous, right? We scoff, we criticize, we belittle, we discredit. We hate. And that's what some of the Jews in Paul's audience are doing. Some are a little bit more blatant. In verse 45, it says that they are directly contradicting what Paul is saying and they are reviling him. If you look in the Greek, that, real, that Greek is literal blaspheme. They're, blas they're slandering him. This is explicit opposition to Paul's ministry of the gospel. And because of this, Paul then says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Here is the turning point in the book of Acts. Paul is now saying, hey, we've tried. We've tried and tried and tried to reason and to share and to preach the gospel to you. Now we are turning to the Gentiles. This is a tremendous warning I hear, I think, for all of us. Because you've got to understand, for about 12 chapters, the disciples, Paul and Barnabas, they are trying to share the gospel to their nation. They're doing everything they can to persuade them that Jesus Christ is God's Savior and Lord. And what this means is you've got to learn how to show grace, how you've got to learn how to reconcile and live with other nations in peace. But then starting in our chapter today, in verse 51, it says that Paul and Barnabas did what? They shook off the dust from their feet. That's what it says. If you uh, do some biblical study about this phrase, this is a sign that means that we've done what we could and we are moving on. It's a last measure. And I, I struggle with this, you know? Because I struggle with this because I, I think to myself, and you might be thinking this too, how is this consistent with God's grace and love? Paul continually tells this in his letters and he continually even tells this to Timothy and Titus. He says to Titus chapter, in chapter 3, he says this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. I struggle with this. 
how is this consistent with God's grace and love? This is a hard, hard teaching. It's a hard teaching for me to accept. And honestly, it's a harder teaching for me to apply. Because, you know, when I got into the ministry, I didn't get into the ministry to shake dust off my feet. You know what I'm saying? I got into the ministry to preach the gospel, to share the gospel and love people. But I've had people do this to me. When I was young and contentious and wanted to quarrel about everything, I could see the dust from other people's feet, figuratively. <laughs> They'd meet up with me once, twice, and then no more. And here's why Luke records this for us. It's a warning. It's a warning for me. It's a warning for you. It's a warning for all of us that we have to constantly pray and pursue humility so that our pride, like some of the Jews in our text today, would not get in the way of God's word and will in our hearts and in our lives, you know? And, and, and the principle behind this teaching, here's the principle behind this teaching, and that is this. You can't convince someone that doesn't want to be convinced, right? Like, a Laker fan is not going to convince me that LeBron James is better than Steph Curry, <laughs> right? Because I don't want that to be true. You can't convince me. I don't want to be convinced. What that means is that persuasion and convincing and really even the sharing of the gospel is not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. Right? That's why sports fans are illogical. Because <laughs> it's a matter of their heart. Now, this doesn't mean that you give up on people. Right? That's not what Paul is doing. That's not what Jesus teaches it means that you change your tactic, right? This is the original atomic habits, okay? Not in anger, but out of love, out of obedience and faith to God and his word, right? We allow some space and time. We allow other voices maybe to speak into their lives. And it doesn't mean that we don't stop praying for them because it is a spiritual matter of the heart. So maybe some of you here, you have friends, maybe some of you have family members and you've tried to share the gospel with them. And maybe that's made things worse. Well, I think that there is biblical warrant here to give some space and time. Not in anger, but out of love. Trusting, right, that God, they're in God's hands, right? I remember I did this with my brother um, when I used to live in Southern California. Um, you know, because I was uh, in seminary and uh, I'd always try to get him to come out to church and, you know, um, and then, but, he, you know, he just, it never, it never really just made it, its impact. And I just felt so unworthy. I felt so, um, you know, just, uh, what is it, just unused. And then finally, I move up to the bay and all of a sudden he's going to church. <laughs> you know? And I go, hey, how come you're going to church now? He's like, I don't know. After you stopped bugging me about it, I was like, I had some time to think about it. <laughs> I was like, meh. All right, you know? Okay, whatever. So at least you're going. In ministry and conversion discipleship, right, there is a, 
yes, there is an element of our participation, right? There is that phrase like that Paul says, who will, how will they hear the good news if no one is preaching to them? Who, how will they hear if no, no feet are sent? There is that element of human responsibility, but we see here that there is an element of God's sovereign will and wisdom, and you have to go through the steps with prayer and trust in the Holy Spirit, Right? Um, Jesus says this in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus. He says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you got to pray. you got to trust. Now, this brings us to the last point, which is the main point. Um, today, we don't really have this Jew-Gentile distinction. You know, um, It's all sort of a melting pot with globalization and technology. And so... What may be a better modern analogy is maybe we can make this distinction between Christian and not Christians. I think that would be more applicable. And God is saying to us, just as he said to Paul and Barnabas in the early church in verse 47, he's saying, I have made you, Christians, a light for the Gentiles, for not the Christians, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Theologians all recognize that in the book of Acts there is this theme. And that theme is this. The gospel of Jesus is not just for the Christian community. It is very much also for those outside the Christian community. And so in the book of Acts, we see this constant portrait of the turning to God by those considered to be outsiders of the Christian community or the religious and spiritual community. And it's very imperative for us as Christians and as the church to remember this original mission. It's easy for us as Christians to think the church is just for us. It's just for my life stage. Right? I'm looking for young adults. I'm looking for married couples. I'm looking for families. I'm looking for retirees. But what we see here throughout the book of Acts constantly is that the church is not just for those in the church. And the only way to remember this, I think, is that we have to remember that you and I, friends, we were outsiders too, right? Until someone's brought us in. And even now in our heart and our own life, we can still behave like outsiders still. And so God's passionate and continual mission to save outsiders, it gives us hope not only for them, but it also gives hope for us, right? Because God says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that he will remain faithful to us even when we are faithless. You see, you can't have your cake and eat it too in the, in the Christian community. You can't say, I want God's grace, but... I don't want to give it. I don't really want to share it with others. And so in verse 48, here's what this says. It says that when the Gentiles heard this, right, that Paul was like, hey, we're going to now share the gospel to you. It says that they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. But what? 
Were they angry? Were they mad? Were they discouraged? Did they give up? No, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let me just sum this paragraph up and we'll close. What this paragraph communicates to us that the Bible is not just truth in a vacuum. Being a Christian, knowing Jesus, following Jesus is not just the mission of God in a vacuum. What do I mean by that? Well, the paragraph I just read, Paul and Barnabas are facing tremendous adversity, aren't they? James was killed. Peter has been imprisoned. The church is being persecuted. In our text, they are scoffed. They are slandered. They're driven out of the city. In the next chapter, we're going to see that Paul will almost lose his life because he will get physically stoned. But somehow, someway, in the midst of all of this adversity, in the midst of all of this suffering, by the power of God, by the faithfulness of God, by the grace and wisdom of God, souls are still being saved. Right? Lives are still being transformed. The church is rejoicing. The word of Christ just keeps spreading. Can you comprehend this? This is so hard to comprehend, isn't it? Especially when you yourself are in the thick of adversity. You're like, I don't want to rejoice. I want to make this stop. And looking at everyone here, you know, just looking at everyone here and seeing you here, this right here is the only thing that helps me comprehend this. Because when I look at a room like this, I don't know everything. I don't know, I mean, some of you all, this is your first time here. But I can only imagine I can only imagine the challenges and the adversity that you had to go through, right? The pain and the suffering, the doubt and the anxiety that you had to persevere and endure to make it to this room today. To still be a Christian. To still go to church. To still trust in God and follow Him. I have uh, eaten with many of you and laughed with many of you, but I can only imagine the tears, the sleepless nights and the prayers and the faith it took throughout the years for you to get to this point. To be here today and to worship your Lord and Savior who has saved you, who has forgiven you, who has redeemed you and protected you and carried you here. I can only imagine. And our consolation is that our God does not have to imagine because He knows and He sees and He cares about you. Like that song we just sang, the king of my heart is the shadow where I hide. He's the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, the fire inside my veins. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, by the way. (laughs) 
And what we've seen in the early church thus far, we've seen persecution, we've seen imprisonment, we've seen death, we've seen grief, confusion, and discouragement. But by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the sovereignty and wisdom of God, by the sheer will, by the sheer will of God, we see his people, we see his church moving forward. So maybe you're here today and you're wondering, how am I going to move forward? I'm tired. I'm anxious. I'm in pain. Well, I want you to look around this room. And I want you to know that the person to your left and the person to your right is probably going through that too. And what we see here, not in the, only in the early church, but even in our church, that God is blessing us with joy. Unexplainable joy of knowing a God who loves you so deeply and forgives you and, be with, be will, and he will be with you no matter what to the end. How is this possible that the early church who suffered so much and endured so much to rejoice like they did, to multiply like they did, to glorify like they did? How come they didn't just say, hey, the Jesus project is over, guys. <laughs> I'm not wanting to get arrested. I'm not wanting to die. I'm calling it in. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> in my younger days, I might give you a theological outline how to have joy. But now, I know that I can't make it happen. Not for myself, not for you, not for us. But I know that there is someone who can. And that is God. Only God can bring the joy. And I'm talking about real joy. Joy that will be your foundation in the storm. Only He can bring the Holy Spirit. Only He can bring the Holy Spirit that will bring the hope in your heart, the grace that you need, the unity that we need, the endurance that we need, the faith that we need to see God's glory working in our midst. So God, would you bring it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you And every single one of us is going through a storm. Or we've gone through a storm. Or we're going to go through a storm. And I know the temptation for all of us is to not want storms in our lives. We just want comfort. I just want comfort. We just want stability. I want stability. We just want predictability. I want predictability. We just want control. I want control. But we what we see here in scripture and what we cannot deny in our lives, past, present, is that storms will come. But in the midst of it, your gospel 
is taking root in people's hearts. Your gospel is working and still converting. <laughs> Souls are being saved. Lives are being transformed. People are finding joy in the midst of their adversity and turmoil. How? How? Is it by mental toughness? No. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we all come before you today and we lay down all our pride and all our effort and we say we need you, Holy Spirit, third person in the Holy Trinity. We need you to apply the redemption that has been accomplished, to apply the resurrection that is real, to apply the victory where Satan, sin, and death are overcome. Holy Spirit, fill us. Give us courage. Give us hope. Give us faith. Give us all those things, all the fruit of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, give us joy. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen.